0: Hi, Andrew Dunkley here and uh, just want to say thank you for listening to Space Nuts throughout 2023. Fred and I are taking just a couple of weeks off, uh, but we will be back early January. Uh, In the meantime, here's a repeat episode from early 2023, one of our Q&A episodes. Space Nuts. Hi there. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my name is Andrew Dunkley, the host of Space Nuts. It's good to have your company on yet another episode. Now, coming up on this episode, we'll catch up with Professor Fred Watson, strangely enough, because he's not in Australia at the moment. He's somewhere on the other side of the world talking to very important people uh, like his family yes. and a few others from the United Nations, just bye-bye. So we'll be uh, talking about what he's doing over there, but we'll also be focusing a lot of attention on audience questions this week, being episode 340. Uh, Is there a source of dark energy that may well now be defined? If it is, it's huge news. Rubble asteroid questions, magnetism, the mass of photons, artificial gravity, nuclear fusion. It's all coming up and Fred hasn't pre-heard them. We're doing a potluck episode. on Space Nuts today. hope you can stick around.
1: 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts
2: report it feels good.
0: And the man of the hour, or the man who was joining us for this hour, one or the other, is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. Very good to see you again, down there in sun Dublin. It's been very sunny. Uh, you're lucky to be in Scotland because we've uh, just come out of a heat wave, oh. uh, temperatures for about five, four, five, six days in a row, up uh, around the 38 mark oh. Celsius-wise. Oh. Yeah, well above the 100 in the old scale. So... Um, <laughs> We got a bit of a. We got a very, very significant um, change through on Thursday night that uh, caused a, a bit of a, a problem around the the coast, yes. Sydney included. I know. Yes, um, I've heard about that. Yeah, so we got a dust I, I was taking a photo of the dust as it rose up around town as the the, the, the southerly buster, as we call them, uh, blew through, and I actually snapped the camera at the exact moment of a lightning bolt. So oh, I got a well photo loved. of a lightning bolt. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool. I look forward to yeah. seeing that. Yeah, I'll send it to you. Uh but uh it's um it's been very warm but not so where you are. Uh if you take off the 30
3: from your temperature, uh that's about what <laughs> we've got here.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: so I'm in Bonnie Scotland at the moment as you said I'm uh, staying uh, visiting my family. I'll be briefly mm. but I'm visiting my family which is a delight.
0: Very nice. Yeah. Uh preceding that, you've spent a couple of weeks talking to people from um Is it COPUS? Yes. The uh, United Nations Committee that uh, is looking at the peaceful uses of outer space. That's correct. So um, this is United Nations
3: 101. Uh, United Nations has uh, as one of its offices something called uh, UNUSA, which stands for the United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs. And within UNUSA is a committee uh, which is the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, or COPWAS, and, and COPWAS has a subcommittee which is called the Scientific and Technical Subcommittee, and that is what I was at. So uh, uh-huh. the, the, the last two weeks, uh, or sorry, the first two weeks uh, in February, um, there was the annual meeting of the Science and Technical Subcommittee of COPWAS, and... Uh, This was my first experience uh, of being in that meeting. I was part of Australia's delegation, uh, a small delegation of Australians attending. uh, And I was there as an expert advisor on dark and quiet skies, which, of course, are very big in the hearts of astronomers. I I did say it was my first meeting. Uh, That's not quite true because I attended quite a lot of COPWAS virtually last year but it's certainly uh, the first time I was there in person. The first time I could see the interaction between the different nationalities, the different nations uh, represented by COPUS, and uh, also the first time I could see the process of how you achieve consensus among a very disparate groups of uh, group of nations with different ideas. Um, I had the great privilege of presenting Australia's position on dark and quiet skies, which is essentially... Uh, something to the effect that we recognize that, um, you know, uh, space in particular, the idea of satellite constellations for uh, for internet access on Earth, uh, that space is very important, that these satellite constellations are an important aspect of uh, our future human life. Uh, but at the same time, Australia has invested considerable amounts in astronomical infrastructure and doesn't want space constellations to get in the way. And so... Um, That's really the nub of the the issue, this balance between uh, what the space industry wants and what we want from the space industry and what we want to protect in terms of dark and quiet skies. And my view is pretty optimistic about this, especially as we see the industry itself responding to the concerns of astronomers. So that was uh, what took up a lot of my time during the two weeks of the Copperworth Subcommittee meeting last week and the week before.
0: Yeah, I, I thought when mm-hmm. when it sort of um, <laughs> focused on peaceful use, yep. um, they, they were going to be discussing, you know, not putting weaponry in space. That's not part of it? Uh, um, yes and no. Um,
3: it, it's part of the the assumption, the underlying assumption of the discussions of this committee that it would yeah. all be about peaceful uses. Uh, So setting aside the possible military uses of outer space, which are a very different thing, but I have to say that that idea did raise its head several times during the committee, uh, but the committee is all about the peaceful uses of outer space.
0: I suppose with um, Vladimir Putin announcing that that they're willing to ditch the nuclear non-proliferation treaty in the wake of um, the US support for Ukraine... That space would come into play as a potential launching ground, if you like. So, um, yeah, it's it's a hot topic. Yeah. But, uh, the the peaceful use of space. Uh, we've got a lot more private entities uh, getting up there, and uh, it's it's getting very busy as we've exactly. said before. That's and, right, and that's the concern. That's the real okay.
3: concern about this uh, of this committee, despite the fact uh, that that uh, shadow that you just mentioned certainly cast itself over the committee. And its I'm sure it
0: did, yeah. yes. It certainly um, made big news around here. All right, uh, and it's not over. You've got more work to do before you get back home, haven't you? Yes, indeed. There's a, a conference uh, on a on a,
3: a much more scientific level. There is a conference which is all about the future use of surveys, uh, big surveys in astronomy, and in particular coordinating optical surveys, invisible Eye, with the European Southern Observatory being one of the hosts of this meeting, and the radio service with the Square Kilometre Array Observatory being uh, the other host. Uh, and yeah. b- by the way, just incidentally, uh, I briefly passed by the headquarters of the Square Kilometre Array Observatory oh. yesterday at Jodrell Bank in the north of England. Oh, wow. Yeah, I fantastic. Didn't, I didn't go in and say, I'm the astronomer at large or anything. I went and had a cup of coffee instead. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, it's an amazing facility though. that's spectacular. Right. Yes it is job mm-hmm. is spectacular that's true. Now Fred, we, we were going to uh, discuss this uh, breaking news I, su- I suppose. Uh, it's it certainly um, caught my attention over the last few days and that is uh, the potential for the discovery of a source for dark energy, but it's also been brought up in a question. So I think we might um, go straight to the question, then you you and I can discuss it after that. This uh, one
1: comes from Daniel. Hi, Andrew and Fred. This is Daniel from Adelaide. I have a theory that brings together all of your favourite topics. (laughs) Could black holes be the source for dark matter and dark energy? Could black holes suck up normal matter and energy and somehow convert them to dark matter and dark energy and then spit them back out? There's theories like Hawking Radiation and the Information Paradox, which talk about how things can get out of a black hole. But they've never been observed. Maybe it's because they relate to dark matter and dark energy, which we also haven't observed. And here's why I think this could be a thing. So for dark matter, when it gets spit out, it could be gravitationally bound to the black hole and not go very far, and we already know that dark matter clumps in galaxies and around black holes. For dark energy, perhaps it gets spit out at faster than light, which is why it can escape the black hole's gravitational pull, And could be why it's expanding the universe and it's accelerating because as more and more black holes are created, more dark energy is being released. And for both, perhaps being fast in light is why we can't observe it. This is no doubt a crazy theory that won't stand the Fred test, but just wanted to ask the question. (laughs) Love the show, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Daniel. Well, interestingly enough,
0: (laughs) what you have just theorized May well be true. So there's a Nobel Prize headed your way. <laughs> yes. Keep an eye on the um, on your letterboxes
3: because that's the yes. way it's sure to arrive. Um, great stuff, Daniel. And you are, in a sense, ahead of the curve there because yeah. uh, for the first time, uh, we've seen this week uh, a paper, um, a scientific paper that exactly does that, links uh, black holes with dark energy, not with dark matter, uh, but with dark energy. Now, What is different from the Daniel theory is the mechanism for this. It doesn't involve things being spat out of black holes at the speed of light or anything of that kind. Uh, It's simply an observation that has been made that uh, turns out to give you a possible explanation for the dark energy that we believe fills the universe and is causing the universe to expand uh, ever more rapidly. Uh, And it comes about by a series of uh, observations made by uh, quite a large team of seventeen researchers, nine countries led by the University of Hawaii, but including British scientists as well, um, which look at the way black holes evolve over time. And what they've done is they've uh, looked at black holes which are in the early universe. So that what we do is look back, uh, look out uh, for, to for, to very distant galaxies, and uh, look at these black holes in the early universe, uh, we can see how energetic they are, and you know how much they're gobbling up uh, material uh, around them. But then, to look much later in the universe, in other words, to more recent times, uh, to look at galaxies that we believe have run out of the fuel that would provide. The black hole with uh, you, know, you know you know the meals it requires. That's the stars and gas uh, that would surround the, the black hole itself and actually cause the black hole to be to, to increase in mass and become energetic. So um, at the yeah. bottom line with this is that those recent obs- the re- observations of, of black holes, as we see them recently, and these are all supermassive black holes in the centres of galaxies. They are much bigger than they ought to be. Um, they're something like uh, up to 20 times more massive than you would expect them to be just from uh, the, the idea of these black holes accreting or gobbling up material. Uh, and yeah. so um, that uh, is a, something that you can't explain. The fact that they're up to 20 times larger than they were in the early universe, the equivalent types of galaxies, you can't explain by what you might call normal astrophysical processes. That's to say, the accretion, and what they, uh, what these scientists are drawing from that observation, is that um, there is some connection, and it's being called cosmological coupling. Uh, there is some connection between the black hole itself and what's called its vacuum energy. Uh, vacuum energy being the, essentially the energy of space itself. Um, so what they're saying is that uh, black holes themselves generate an energy that is somehow coupled to the expansion of the universe, so that this energy increases in mass as the universe expands, uh, and that uh, maybe. Uh, that is the source of dark energy. And in fact, the reason why they make that link is that the uh, the idea of this coupled energy from black holes going into the universe itself, actually, uh, when you do the calculations as to how much vacuum energy there should be in a black hole uh, and look at the accelerated expansion of the universe, you get the same answer. So the yeah. black holes can provide that energy required for the universe's expansion to accelerate. And that's the bottom line uh, with this this work. Um, I'm going to say a little bit from the study's first author, Duncan Farah of the University of Hawaii. He uh, is somebody who used to be at um, Imperial College in London. We can quote what he said. He says, we are really saying two things at once that there is evidence that typical black hole solutions don't work for you on long, long timescales. And we ha- have the first proposed astrophysical source for dark energy. What that means, though, is not that other people haven't proposed sources for dark energy, but that this is the first observational paper where we're not adding, in, adding anything new to the universe as a source for dark energy. Black holes in Einstein's theory of gravity are the dark energy in other words uh if i can put that in a different way um we d- we don't we don't need to look at you know unusual sources of energy that might be making the universe expand more rapidly uh it is actually coming from the black holes themselves which we understand at least at some level uh this yeah. i think potentially is extremely exciting andrew you and i have talked many many times about black uh, about, uh, sorry, the, well, both black holes and the dark energy. But to link them ah. together may well be something that might result one day in a Nobel Prize. Watch this space.
0: Yeah, w- watch your letterbox, Daniel. <laughs> yes. Oh, you my. said it first. But, um, I guess the hard part is how do you prove it?
3: <laughs> yeah. So you've got to, um, I mean, in a sense, this is laying down the first layer of proof, because this comes from observations. Uh, The fact that when you observe black holes in the early universe, black holes in today's universe, uh, there is a mismatch in what you expect their masses to be, that they are 20 times, up to 20 times more massive than what they should be if all they're doing is accreting material. Uh, And so that is a really interesting step. Now, My expectation, Andrew, is that this will be challenged by other astrophysicists, uh, and we might see a bit of detail in the challenges that perhaps have been missed by these authors. But it's certainly a very interesting first
0: step in perhaps a real understanding of what dark energy is all about. Indeed, yeah, it'd be uh, extraordinary. But uh, it it sort of prompts a question in my mind. If black holes are responsible for the production of dark energy, which is also responsible for the ever-increasing expansion and acceleration of the universe itself, when all the black holes die, will we have a Gnab Gib? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a Gnab Gib will, or the Big Crunch, as it's sometimes known.
3: Um, Yeah, so um, that's... this is, that, that is a really good question, and my guess is the answer is no. And the reason okay. for that is that, yes, black holes do evaporate uh, because that's what Hawking radiation does, but they evaporate on hugely long timescales. And so I don't think you can wait that long uh, because before <laughs> then you might have had the big rip uh, where the fabric yeah. of space
0: itself is torn apart by the expansion of the universe. There it is. All right. Just like blowing up a balloon. Mm. (laughs) They eventually have a big rip. (laughs) And my my granddaughter, Harry, is going to be blowing up a lot of balloons today because she turns four. Oh, fantastic. Happy birthday, Harry. (laughs) Uh, And thank you, Daniel, for your insightful question. You actually hit the nail on the head uh, of some news that uh, only came out in the last couple of days. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson.
1: Him now, and babe Here, at the Angle You're listening to Space Nuts, the podcast about astronomy and space science with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson.
0: Now, Fred, we might as well continue to uh, load the audience with questions. We got, uh, when we appealed for more questions a few um, episodes past, we, uh, we got inundated. Excellent. Uh, and some of them are sort of um, looking at things we've talked about recently, including Andrew. Hello, Fred and Andrew. Great episode. I'm really enjoying the latest
3: one, uh, but I have paused it because I had a burning question after your item about the Rubble Pile asteroids and how long-lived. They are very, very fascinating. I'm wondering how... I don't know, what the different danger level is from Rubble Pile asteroids versus the solid ones. And um, just wondering... Shouldn't a Rubble Pile asteroid boot up a lot more than a big one and thus potentially be less damaging? Anyway, fascinated to hear your answer to that one and uh, keep up the great work, guys. Thoroughly enjoy it. Been listening from the very early days. This is Andrew from Melbourne, by the way. Cheers. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you, Andrew. Hope you're avoiding those grass fires. That's another thing that's happening at the moment, grass fires around Victoria and north of Melbourne. So, um, it's not a happy place at the moment. But, uh, Yeah, good question. I mean, we talked about uh, those those rubble asteroids recently. And we might recap on what they are, but um, I mean, in short, they're a conglomerate type of uh, asteroid. But it turns out they're they're tough as nails. That's right. And this
3: came from uh, this work came from the uh, Hayabusa spacecraft with uh, the samples brought back from asteroid Ryugu, which, as we know, is a rubble pile asteroid. It's a pile of debris, and right. um, it was the uh, careful analysis of crystals within those samples that gave rise to the idea that rubble pile asteroids last a lot longer than what you might call monolithic asteroids, asteroids that are one chunk of material. Um, That was the result of the the isotope measurements and the crystallography. Uh, And the inference of that was that maybe they are harder to destroy, um, that they kind of behave in a springy fashion. If they're clouted by something else, they act like what you might call a giant space cushion, In fact, I think that's a quote from one of the authors of that, of that paper. And so um, that giant space cushion takes a blow but doesn't destroy the rubble pile asteroid, which is... Exactly the opposite of what you would expect to happen. You'd think a pile yes. of debris, you hit it with something else, would just fly apart, but that is apparently not the case. So the no. uh, the other inference from that was that perhaps, because these asteroids may well be very long-lived, perhaps there are more of them than we expected. Um, and the good news story as an aspect of this was that a rubble pile asteroid might well respond well to the shockwave of a nearby nuclear blast if you needed to detect one. And just going back, Andrew, to my um, time with the United Nations uh, last week and the week before, I also had the great pleasure of sitting in on a meeting of the International uh, Asteroid Warning Network uh, who think about exactly this sort of thing. And the rubber pile idea was one that certainly was discussed Uh, during this meeting, that you might be able to use an indirect nuclear blast to to deflect one more readily than you could uh, a solid, a monolithic one. Um, Now, that doesn't answer Andrew's question, which is about how much does a rubble pile, you know, disintegrate as it passes through the atmosphere. And my guess is that uh, given the apparent resilience of these rubble piles, it may well be that they would still behave much the same way as a monolithic asteroid uh, when they're heated to you know, high temperatures by their passage through the atmosphere. Of course, a big rubble pile asteroid would be an object of considerable danger uh, to the no. Earth because he's talking about something that could, could clearly uh, uh, generate um, probably statewide and maybe even uh, continent-wide damage. Uh, depending on the size, I'm talking, thinking now about things of the order of hundred meters across. Uh, yeah. I think yes. So I, I have studied the details of this. I'm sure there are other people. In fact, some of the colleagues I was speaking to in the International Asteroid, Asteroid Warning Network might well, uh, might well have uh, thoughts on this. But um, uh, it's uh, intuitively, I'd expect it would be bad news either way. That's the bottom line.
0: <laughs> if something was yeah. uh, inbound uh, of that mass. <laughs> So, Andrew, if you hear of one heading towards Earth, don't go out without your umbrella. Hey. <laughs> I thought it was a paper bag you were supposed to take with you for things like that. A bag on your head? Yeah. Probably that's yeah. effective. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes indeed. Well, um, but indeed. Uh, but great to hear from you, Andrew. But the answer is, sorry, it's still going to kill us all. Well, um, hopefully hopefully we'll... the nuclear class theory will fix
2: it. That's right. <laughs> uh.
0: All right. Let's move on to our next question. This one comes from Peter.
2: Hello, I Peter. I am in the United States. I just finished listening to an old episode called Magnetism that you guys did, and I was wondering: black holes. uh, Photons can't leave the event horizon of a black hole. How do magnetic field lines get out? Doesn't quite make sense. Um, Also, the second question, during the episode, uh, Dr. Watson said that um, the magnetic north pole of the Earth was wandering around, uh, and it was currently somewhere in Siberia. I always understood that the magnetic north pole was in the southern geographic pole, that the magnetic north of your compass needle points toward the south so that the South Magnetic Pole was actually the North's uh, geographic
0: pole. Oh, I got that wrong, thanks, guys. Great show. All right. <laughs> uh, thank you, Peter. What I want to know is whether he was turning left or right. I, I heard a, a car indicator no in way. the background <laughs> of that.
3: <laughs> Depends <laughs> which way the magnet
0: was pointing, obviously. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Next side of the road. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so a, a double whammy, uh, magnetic fields... Uh, and uh, how do magnetic fields escape the uh, the sun when its gravity is so very intense and everything falls back in? Is that what he meant? Yeah, well, yes, I think he was specifically referring to black holes, though, as well, um,
3: which mm. also have magnetism. It's a good question, actually. Um, uh, the magnetic field uh, around a black hole, is it escaping through the event horizon or not? Because magnetism is carried by photons, which are... Subatomic particles, the electromagnetic force carrier, um, and my guess is that the magnetism must be created outside the event horizon. But I'm not enough of a black hole specialist to know the answer to that, uh, so I might uh, defer to my colleagues about that. Uh, however, um, Peter's right about the, you know, the, the the magnetic pole. We 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 conventionally refer to the north magnetic poles of the Earth as being the one that's in the northern hemisphere, even though yep. it would be the south pole of the magnet that would point towards it uh, <clears throat> on a, on, a, on a, in a magnetic compass. So uh, you, you're right to, to pick up on that. And in fact, I think we had that debate at the time. Uh, but the, yep. what we conventionally describe as the north magnetic pole is indeed uh, in the northern hemisphere of the Earth, because uh, it wouldn't make much sense if the south magnetic pole was up there, wouldn't it? Among the allies. It wouldn't really, would no, it? No, mm. quite so.
0: <laughs> what happens when the magnetic field of the Earth flips? Is that going to mess all that up? Yes. Yeah, well, that's right. It means
3: that you might well, get points the other way. The way it should be. I think yeah. we should all look forward to that when it might happen within the next 2,000 years or so. Right. Okay. okay. Hold your
0: breath. Yes. Uh, so the answer to your question, um, Peter, was don't know and yes that was it <laughs> well it's better than yes and don't know good <laughs> point all right thanks peter great to hear from you and um yeah we'll we'll uh, um yeah i suppose uh, we we'll, yeah as fred said we'll we'll wait till the flip happens and then everything'll be sorted out <laughs> this is space nuts Zero G. Space nuts. Uh, Now, this question that comes from Alan, Fred, you touched on in answering Peter's question. This is actually about photons. Hi, Alan from Copenhagen, Denmark. I just learned from another
2: podcast that photons carry no mass. Then
3: how can they carry energy when E equals mc squared?
0: Hey. (laughs) <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, that's a good question. Now you talked about what photons carried in the previous answer. So if they've got no mass, how can they carry something? That's that's a good question.
3: What they don't have is what's called a rest mass, uh, because ah. you can't you can't stop. Well, you can actually stop a photon, uh, but that needs special special little sorts of equipment. But they don't have a rest mass. And so they do carry energy, uh, exactly in accordance with um, other equations, a bit like E equals mc squared. Uh, so photons carry electromagnetic energy, and indeed magnetism is a, is a form of that, and so it's carried by photons, as we were just saying. But um, the, the 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 deciding thing is clearly photons do have energy, uh, and in fact. When we talk about the wavelength of light, for example, uh, the, the smaller the wavelength, the higher the energy. And so when you get to, uh, uh, to um, things like gamma rays and x-rays, these very high energy uh, photons, then we just discuss them in terms of their energy rather than talking about uh, wavelengths or frequencies at all, just the amount of energy that that photon carries. But, it, but the bottom line, um, Alan, and it's a, it's a great question, and it probably sounds like a glib answer, but it's that you, if you s- stopped a photon, it doesn't have mass. That's the
0: bottom line. Nah. Well, it's interesting you should say if you could stop a photon. I, I read an article the other day, there's a, I can't think of the scientist's name, but she's been playing with light, yeah. and she's actually been successful in manipulating Light yes. and affecting <laughs> photons, and and she actually reduced the speed of light to seventeen meters per second in a lab, which I f- I, I just can't comprehend that. And she said she could even save it up and use it later. Yes, um, I can't get mad around that, I, and neither can I. Um,
3: I. And I know these experiments take place, and they use um, they they basically use uh, sort of highly focused clusters of of atomic nuclei to interact with the photons. Uh, it's a wow. field that I don't know too much about, but it's a great area of physics. And you're quite right that you you can slow down photons uh, to have a speed of light that is very slow indeed. Uh, yeah, but it's I think it needs very special manipulation of the light beam by um, you know by uh, 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 focusing, as I said, focusing. Uh, uh, particles, subatomic particles, in such
0: a way that they interact with the photon and slow it down. I suppose uh, those kinds of experiments and those kinds of achievements also help explain how light moves around the universe and how uh, we can still see things that happened so long ago because of the manipulation of uh, of gravity and all the other things yeah. that are affecting the yeah. of light around the universe. So, that's correct. And, and that's how you can see. One thing happened three times because of the yes. the light at different speeds due to gravitational waves and or gravitational effects and yep. uh, um, the lensing and all the, all of
3: those things. It's about lensing, That's right. So it's um you know so you, you're quite right. Sometimes you get uh, a phenomenon, a, b- b- a burst of energy from maybe a supernova explosion that takes different pathways around a galaxy whose mass is acting as a lens, and so you get perhaps three different images of the same thing. And uh, there's been some remarkable work done on this kind of thing, including predicting when a supernova explosion will be seen. I think that's happened. And uh, the prediction turned out to be correct, because it had had already been seen uh, by a different pathway of light uh, going around another object.
0: Indeed. All right. Thank you, Alan. Our next question comes from Robert. This is a bit of an old chestnut, but I I love talking about this.
2: Hello, Fred and Andrew. This is Robert from... Allings, it's small village in Amsterdam. Love the podcast. Really fun, really interesting. Please keep making it. Hey. I have a question about artificial gravity you guys. How far along are we? Because it's really important for your to be able to go into interstellar space. Now, now that'll be artificial gravity. I know the big take the central football force, it'll push it down. Is that exactly the same as artificial gravity? Do we need that huge colossal ring in space? To make this force happen for people so they can, you know, healthily get to a very far destination. So that's my question. Thank you so much for taking time, and please keep
0: doing what you're doing. Thank you. We will try to keep doing what we're doing, hey. which we're doing right now. Uh, but thank you, Robert. Uh, yeah, artificial gravity—it comes up from time to time. It's um, it, there's a long way to go before we we get there. I think. Yeah, it's so fair although, to say.
3: Um, Although there is work on it, and I think I might have said this before to you, Andrew, on Space Nuts, um, we had a visit uh, several years ago, it's about four years ago now, I think, from Linda Spilko, who was the Cassini project scientist, uh, the Cassini spacecraft. Uh, And her husband runs a company that is working on artificial gravity solutions for spacecraft, and I think when certainly when we spoke to him... uh, uh, he, uh, Dr. Spilker, uh, male Dr. Spilker rather than female Dr. Spilker, he had um, a contract with a, an agency usually known as NASA. Uh, so yeah. he, uh, he was kind of working a, a lot, you know, in a high-flying regions. And I had a, quite a long chat with him about artificial gravity caused by uh, the acceleration that's – because gravity, you know, is equivalent to acceleration – uh, we, we can get an, generate an acceleration by having a rotating wheel, uh, exactly as in 2001, a space odyssey. Uh, and uh, the, in, the nuances of that are really interesting uh, in that there are only a certain range of rotational speeds for which you get something that simulates gravity uh, without peculiar effects. If you, if you have the thing rotating too quickly... Uh, or you are, um, you, you know, your, your wheel is too small um you, you're standing on the outer edge of this wheel with your artificial gravity. Uh, but it yeah. uh, tends to produce rotational effects in your brain that cause nausea and have strange things like if you, you know, if you drop a coin or something, the coin doesn't go straight downwards, i.e. outwards radially. It goes, yeah, it goes off to the side. And that's very yeah. counterintuitive, but uh, yeah, this this was work that's ongoing. So it is actually a field of uh, of activity within the excuse me the astronautical community. Um, the just an aside here, uh, which is straying way off Robert's question, but I think is really interesting. And again, this is a news item that came out this week. Uh, but we usually associate the idea. Of uh, gravity and acceleration being equivalent uh, with Einstein, because his equivalence principle was something that was, um, I think he he realised that back in 1907. It was after he published the special theory of relativity in 1905, but before he got to the uh, to the um, uh, general theory in 1915. It may have been a little bit later than that, but he he twigged this point that. Gravity and acceleration are equivalent. He called it the equivalence principle. And it turns out uh, this recent research that has been done uh, by scientists from a number of universities, uh, including Caltech, the California Institute of Technology, uh, that show that Leonardo da Vinci uh, did an experiment that demonstrated the same thing. Really very (laughs) clever that Leonardo grasp the idea that uh, there is an acceleration, which is the equivalent of gravity. And I think that's an extraordinary thing uh, for, you know, somebody to, uh, to, um, to, to realise in the, in the early 16th century. Uh, it, it was really, it's usually Galileo we think of as laying the groundwork yeah. of that e- equivalence, but it looks as though Leonardo got, got there first. So Isaac Newton should have just eaten the apple. <laughs> I think he did actually in the end. Uh, you can uh, you can follow this up actually. There's a paper uh, which is in a journal called Leonardo. Uh, it's called uh, Leonardo da Vinci's visualization of gravity as a form of acceleration.
0: Yeah, he was way ahead of his time, wasn't he? Certainly Incredible was. There. Certainly was. Uh, why? Right. All right. Uh, this is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley with Fred Watson.
2: Who could feel what it means to win a share in Lotto's $30 million Mega Draw
1: this Saturday. Hurry, get your ticket today. Wouldn't it be nice?
2: Roger, you're here also. Space nuts.
0: Now, we might uh, squeeze in one or two more questions, Fred. This one, um, <laughs> again, uh, looks at something we've talked about before. This is Tom. Hello, Fred and Andrew. This is Tom from Minnesota, and I just wanted
2: to congratulate the two of you on being selected to be cryogenically frozen until nuclear fusion is ready to be integrated into space exploration. (laughs) Now, when we thawed you guys out, you're going to have the honor of getting to pick where the first nuclear fusion powered rocket is going to go. And I am so curious to hear
0: what you think might be the goals of that first mission. Love the show. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Interesting way to ask a question. I, um, yeah, we've talked about long-haul travel in space and, and ways to propel ourselves, um, sails, light sails. Uh, we've talked about you know traditional rockets just not holding their water, so to speak uh but um nuclear fusion has been talked about as a potential uh way of of traveling at pace long distance in space and that's um that's what he's alluding to so uh and, and i know they're working on all sorts of options fred and, and the time will come when they when they find a way to uh reach reasonable speeds because that's the, the the challenge isn't it uh, get, getting fast enough to get somewhere before we all, you know, drop off the tweet. Hey, we're but, but where would we go first? I uh, that is that is the question. And my first thought when in, when I um, listened to Tom's question, my my first thought would be Alpha Centauri. I mean, you go to the nearest star that's not the Sun, wouldn't would
3: you not? Um, I think you'd be. I actually think you'd be going even nearer than that. I think you would try it out we're, first on the moon. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, um, so See how yeah, quickly you can get there. Um, it's really no, interesting. No, Sorry. Beyond the testing phase. Yes, all right, beyond the testing phase. No, Tom, Tom's quite right. Um, but um, you might be surprised, or you may not be surprised to hear this, Andrew, but um, there is a working group on nuclear power sources in space which had several meetings during the... Meeting the COPUS subcommittee meeting that I was at a couple of weeks ago, uh, and that working group was chaired by a very eminent uh, British uh, physicist, somebody who's worked with nuclear power sources over many decades. Uh, Dr. Sam Harbison, who actually resigned uh, retired from from the head at the uh, lead of the working group. But I sat in on some of those sessions. really interesting, the kind of things that are being discussed in terms of nuclear power sources in space and fusion of course is always the holy grail um, my feeling was that nuclear fusion as a power source in space is not seen as uh, as the the, the 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 panacea that you might think it is it doesn't solve all the problems it just gives you a bit more of a string to your bow uh, but uh, i yet yeah, you know I, i'm I'd be inclined to agree with you that if if the um, if you did have uh, a, a new form of energy, a new form of propulsion that was going to get you somewhere pretty quickly, then Alpha Centauri would definitely be a worthwhile target. It's still going to take you uh, no fewer than four and a half third years to get there because that's how long yeah. light light takes to get there or to, to, and to come back. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that's a pretty good guess. And I'd go along with you, Andrew. Okay. I hope Tom, anyway, agree. I hope
0: hope Tom agrees. <laughs> yes, uh, and just keep working on your nuclear fusion generator, Tom, and let us know when it's done and we'll take a look. I think we can just throw in one very quick uh, question from a YouTube listener, Emil from Denmark, who follows us on YouTube. He said, I don't know if you ever uh, read YouTube comments. Obviously, somebody did. No. He said, but I've always wondered if the atmosphere of the Earth is hiding colors of space, like um, the effects from the sun, which uh, seems yellow, but is uh, actually white? Question mark Also, how come gas is blue at 2,000, I'm assuming, degrees Kelvin, and the sun is yellow at 6,000, but you need 10,000 Kelvin to get a blue star? Hope life is good uh, and um, glad you're uploading to Spotify. I am too. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, so uh, is, is the Earth's atmosphere hiding the true colours of the universe from us? Um, uh, yes, at some level it is. And
3: exactly uh, as Emil said, its effect is to redden light very slightly uh, to, to uh, you know, the, the scattering of the atmosphere removes the blue light from the atmosphere, so you get something redder. And the same is true uh, with light passing through dust clouds in, in the distant universe. We can work out by how much reddening there is, uh, how much dust there is around. So there, there is this modification of colors. Um, the second part of his question uh, is very interesting. So that blue, uh, so the, a, 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 a star like the sun, which is white, uh, is at about 5,000 degrees Celsius or Kelvin, actually, which adds a further two hundred seventy-three degrees into it. Uh, if, but a star uh, like Sirius is indeed at a much higher temperature and looks bluish, um, but that's different from the blue of a gas flame at two thousand degrees, which is glowing blue because of the um, the, the basically this, the, the the emission of light from different gases within the. Uh, within, right. the, within the within the the flame, what you're seeing with the star is what's called black body radiation. It is uh, it's as if the star was a completely black body, and you heat it to that particular temperature, that would be the color that it would be, and that's the, the same is true of the sun. Um, so we we we're talking about two different physical processes there that are giving you two different sets of color and two different lots of blueness, if I can put it that way.
0: No, okay, so a red. Dwarf would be what temperature? Uh, Two thousand three hundred thereabouts. Quite cool. Uh, the lower the temperature, the redder. Yes, exactly. The the temperature, that's
3: that's exactly. Oh, that's exactly so. And in fact, wow. we in the lighting industry, uh, and you might know this because when you buy a, often when you buy a, a light globe or a light bulb, you might find something called the correlated co- color temperature marked on it, and it's a temperature in degrees Kelvin, uh, which is. Essentially, a measure of the color of the, the light. So, something like three thousand Kelvin would be a, a warm light, it would be uh, almost yellow in color. Whereas something at five or six thousand Kelvin would be intensely white, and um, you know have that have that that almost painful whiteness about it that we sometimes see with with LED headlines, for example, on cars. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Indeed. Mm. All right. Um, great question uh, from you, Emil. Thank you so much for getting in touch with us and hello to all our YouTube followers. We are pretty well done, Fred. Uh, I will remind people if they do have questions to send them to us via our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. There are a couple of links there. You can uh, the AMA link at the top where you can send us text or audio questions or uh, the tab on the right that says send us your voice question. Don't forget to tell us who you are or where you're from because we love to know and, uh, yeah, that way you can get uh, stalked by somebody who listens. No, 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 nothing like that. Um, But, yeah, it's always good to know who we're talking to. And uh, while you're online, don't forget to check out the Space Nuts shop on our website, and if you're interested in becoming a patron, you can look that up as well. And thank you to all our patrons who have been supporting Space Nuts for such a a long time now. Uh, Your support is certainly welcome and greatly appreciated. Fred, we're done. Thank you so much from Bonnie, Scotland. Uh, It's a great pleasure
3: i the new, uh, and take, thank you for <laughs> for fitting me in this week. Good to talk to you, Oh, others. thanks
0: for finding the time, because I know it's, uh, well, it's been half past 11 your time it now, is, isn't it? It is not it Something yeah, like
3: right. something like that. That's great.
0: Yeah. And uh, you're about to go to bed, and I've only just got up. Mm, there you go. But, uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, we'll look forward to catching up with you soon, Fred. Thank you. No problem, Andrew. Good to talk. See you, see you next time. Okay, Fred Watts, an astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts, and thanks to Hugh in the studio who didn't turn up today. But he'll turn up later and do all his editing and coffee making and everything else. Uh, From me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for your company. We look forward to catching you again on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye.
1: Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast.
0: Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com.
2: This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.